Welcome to Being Honest with My Ex. My ex is Peter C. Haywood. My ex is SJ, better known as Honor Eastley. We were engaged for two years and, and then, then we, we broke, broke up. up and then we stopped talking to each other for a year and now we do a podcast together. Would you have a baby with me? If I can get you to cry next podcast, we'll have a hat trick. <laughs> you don't know this, but I have a very vivid image of what your penis looks like. What? <laughs> if I met you now, I do not think that I would go out with you. Oh my God. I think if I met you now, I'd, I'd fall more in love with you than I did the first time. So do you remember, I think it, like, I don't know, maybe a month ago, I told you that I'd grown magic mushrooms in my room. I do. I don't think that they are magic mushrooms. <laughs> How many did you have to take before you worked that out? Two omelets later, you were like, I am not high at all. <laughs> These are just nutritious and delicious. <laughs> well, I got told that they were and then I like and then I got told that they weren't, but I do think that I did eat some. I can't remember though. <laughs> if you can't remember anything, that's probably a pretty good sign that there's something going on with them. <laughs> And I was really upset. Not, I wasn't really upset. I was just like, what did I eat? My story. My story. No, no, no. I was, I don't care about that, clearly. I was like, what did I, what did I eat? Oh, shit. And now I just, like, they won't stop growing. I have so many mushrooms. (laughs) You should start selling them. (laughs) Well, I don't, I'll just edit this bit out. Hey, guys, I'm selling some magic mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you're going to edit out the thing that you're directing to the podcast audience? No, I'll edit out all the bits where I say that they don't work. (laughs) Guys, I'm selling some mushrooms. They are homegrown, official mushrooms. Adelaide Police, if you're listening to this, not really. Please don't get us to take the website down. Yeah, I mean, clearly I'm not doing that. But if you do want some, just email honoreastly at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> and she does deliver. So great. We got a review. Yeah, we did. Uh, there's a podcast called Always Listening, which I think I've actually talked about a few times. If not on the main podcast, definitely on the warm up. Because I love it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And they started a Patreon. And one of their pledge levels was, we will review your show. And so I said, yes, please. Review our show. And the review went up and I listened to it about two weeks ago. So it's a bit fuzzy, but you listened to it today. I listened to it, you know, like an hour ago. And what'd you think? So I have this thing, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but like before I go to try and listen to every podcast, I feel sick. Like I feel physically ill. By that, I mean like our podcasts, not like just anytime you try to listen to a podcast. No, no, no. Other podcasts, totally okay. But whenever I go to listen to our podcast, I feel sick because I'm really, I'm, I'm always nervous every time I go to listen to one of our podcasts. About what you've said or about if it's going to be good or not? I think it's twofold. One is, did I say something really shit? And two is, or is this really boring? (laughs) And then there's the whole raft of like, you know, imposter syndrome, like, is all the rest of it. Yeah. And so no, that's wait, even... I, I, I don't understand that. I said, yeah, but I don't actually understand what that meant. Imposter syndrome, like, no one actually likes this. Everything's going to turn to shit. Why does anyone care what you think? And I think maybe I've been avoiding my feelings by trawling through Facebook. And I keep finding articles that make me feel worse. <laughs> what feelings have you been avoiding? I've just been really, really stressed and I think I, at the moment, my email, oh my God, it's actually making me 
feel emotional. My email is so out of control. <laughs> My email is so out of control. When will you hit the point? I'm, I'm interrupting you like 16 times in a row here. We're on like four level deep tangents now. Yeah, we are. What point will you stop replying to email? Because there has to be a point where you stop. Like everyone has to hit that point eventually. Where you can't, yeah. Well, I was listening to a podcast called Reply All that we've talked about on here a few times. And they were talking about how PJ, who's one of the hosts, gets all the listener mail sent to his phone. And the other guy, Alex Goldman, who's the host, doesn't read any of it at all. But all right. but PJ is too, he feels too bad to turn it off. He's like, I wouldn't turn it off. He's probably turned it off now. He'd have to, yeah. Like you get too much and you are, if you don't mind me saying, much less famous. <laughs> yeah, but it depends about how you want to reply to stuff. Well, then you look at like Steve Jobs used to reply to his emails up until he died like you could email steve jobs at apple.com and not all the time but a lot of time you would get a direct reply from steve jobs no freaking way like how look it up like it's a thing because that really? that, that, that email just wasn't public public oh. if you looked around you could find it and i think it was if you sent something actionable so if you sent like a complaint about your macbook he would actually reply with like i'll get it sorted and then you get a call from an apple rep or something like that yeah, wow. There's this part in Amanda Palmer's book, which is called The Art of Asking, where she talks about that moment where for her, because this is before social media and stuff, she had the coveted email list. And as soon as she would get someone on the email list, she'd send them an email like immediately that night. And then she ended up in just all of these intimate kind of email pen pal relationships. And then there was a point at which she like she couldn't she couldn't do it anymore and she talked about that experience very positively but I have a lot of angst about it and I'm like replying to emails that I'm like fuck this is like a month old Ugh. I'm the worst I think for me it'll be the point you get way more emails than me you get like three to five times the number of emails I get but I think for me it'll be the point where I can't like I sit down once a week and reply to all my emails and it generally takes me between two and eight hours depending on how much stuff i actually have to deal with because when i say emails i don't just mean like hey peter you're great or like hey pan i got off to your story i mean stuff like i'll get an email from my printer being like hey we need to resolve this and so replying to the email can be like pulling up the files making the changes running them by a team getting them back to the printer so when i say doing my emails i mean like my emails and all the stuff that needs resolving which is why it's important for me to do it once a week but like I think for me, the point where I will have to stop replying to emails is the point where I get enough that I can't do all that in a day. If I have to spend more than one day a week on emails, and that's, that's, that's the limit for me. That's where you just start reading the Tim Ferriss book and then you outsource your email. <laughs> that would feel wrong to me. Like I, I, try to be a very, I try to be very genuine. And so someone sending me an email and getting a reply from an assistant pretending to be me, I, I couldn't do that. Also, I'm a writer, so I'm very proud of my words. And <laughs> no matter how good the assistant was, they wouldn't be able to write like me because that is literally why I make money. Yeah. So as we said before, I've been just trawling through Facebook to get away from the feeling of my unwieldy email inbox. And I actually put up this short video of Louis C.K. on a Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. And he was talking about that emptiness that we have inside and how we placate it with our phone. Like anytime that that bad feeling might come up, we'll just like turn to our phone. And that is 
absolutely what I do. I do that so hardcore. That's why I took a month off of social media because I realized that I use my phone as a way of escaping from feelings I don't like, but it doesn't make it better. It just, it just like takes me away from it. Just delays it. Yeah. In the same way as my, my previous strategy was to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I remember. So I would just sleep all the time and... You would wake up and things wouldn't be different. Yeah, things would be the same. But that bit just before you're about to fall asleep, where you know that you're going to fall asleep and that there's nothing that can be done anymore because you will be asleep so soon. That bit was like, the that was the golden moment. That was your crack. That was my crack. Yeah, that was like, that was the thing that I was like, that's, that is like, when I've been in like crisis, like long-term, really bad times, that was like the moment of relief, that moment just before you fall asleep. And then waking up was just sheer terror because you wake up and all the things are still there and potentially even worse because I would be avoiding stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff that was like maybe a deadline or... Yeah, exactly. Stuff that had deadlines. Other stuff that didn't have deadlines, but also stuff that had deadlines. How did we get onto you scrolling through Facebooks? So we got onto the escaping your feelings thing by talking about imposter syndrome. I totally have imposter syndrome. For me, the more kind of success I get, the more I question it. That makes sense. In, in regards to imposter syndrome, that is, you can't have imposter syndrome if no one thinks you're any good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that means you're just being realistic, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> or you haven't been discovered, you know, whatever. So you dreaded listening to the podcast and so you dreaded listening to this review. So I absolutely dreaded listening to this review and I just feel, I feel uncomfortable I have already listened to the review and it was fine <laughs> and I still feel uncomfortable about it. Like dread? Do you still feel dread? I do. I feel like retrospective dread, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I'm like, I know perfectly what that feeling is like. And I've actually noticed recently that one thing that I've learned a lot in the past, particularly the last two years, is to understand how I'm feeling. And that sounds kind of common sense but it's often really hard because you you know your emotional state is really really complicated and if you're in it you can't assess it also most of the time if it's a you know what you might think of as a negative emotion you want to avoid it so why would you pay attention to it that's just awful <laughs> so what i've learned is to pay attention to it because that's actually how you avoid avoiding is I go, oh, fucking hell, this review, I do not want to listen to this. I feel sick. And when I can be like, I feel sick and acknowledge that and be like, yeah, it makes sense that I feel sick about this. Okay, the way of getting over this feeling is actually to do the thing. I get that same feeling of dread and then sort of more and more, this is sort of the reason why I'm so deliberately honest because I get that feeling of like, ah, and the best way to make it go away, I think, is to do the thing. So if I'm feeling dread about something, I will be like, I'm going to plunge right in because the high I get from doing that thing that I dread is enough to make up for whatever I'm putting off. 
And also then you get rid of the dread. It's like double positive emotion. The other thing that I find difficult is then you have... So if you're talking about something that causes dread that is interpersonal, as in it's not just a thing you need to do, but it's like maybe a conversation you need to have or an awkward tension that's happening. There's competing priorities of like you want to get through the dread, but you also don't want to hurt the other... You know, there's like you don't want to hurt the other person's feelings and all this kind of stuff. But I've actually noticed that for me, one thing that's been really helpful is actually to name, I feel like this sounds kind of obtuse and a bit airy-fairy, but is actually to name my bodily experience. To the other person? Yeah. So as a way of communicating, because it's not judgmental. So me saying, oh, wow, when you say that it makes me feel a bit sick or it makes me feel really anxious it doesn't have as much judgment it could be seen as manipulative i mean sure like it's just the truth right but i mean like my my solution to that problem is i don't hang out with people who aren't okay with me saying things yeah but but you're not saying hey i feel sick and that means that you're wrong and you shouldn't say that like that's not the answer it's just about being able to name that thing as a way of communicating it i went to a really good friend of mine runs this thing called uh, Social Dialogue. It's a group process thing. And I don't know how many kind of psychology buffs are listening, but I've not done it before and it was really interesting. And it's kind of about sorting through complex social issues in a group by people adopting different roles and speaking from those roles. So you might be speaking from a role that you actually personally identify with, but you also might get up and speak from a role that, you don't personally identify with, but so that you can have the conversation with that other role. Does that make sense? Can you give me an example? So we did this group process and I really tried not to, but I accidentally made it all about me. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound like you at all, SJ. (laughs) So we were doing one about understanding gender. That's simple. Everyone can understand gender immediately. It's such an uncomplicated matter. So simple. Anyway, a lot of it was around privilege and gender diversity and all that kind of stuff. And I brought up one about sort of the intersection of biology and the realities of that and sort of gender diversity and privilege and all that kind of stuff. Mostly because I've recently watched a lot of documentaries about the lack of paid maternity leave in America and egg freezing and like, so like biological realities and me thinking about like, fuck, I don't know if I want to have kids and oh my God. uh," And that kind of got picked as the topic. And then the conversation (laughs) (laughs) accidentally ended up (laughs) like not all of it, but a good chunk of it was me sorting out whether to have kids. (laughs) (laughs) So let me get this straight. They were like, trans issues. And you were like, yeah, I'm thinking of having kids. And they were like, I guess that's what we're talking about now. Look, I was really trying to be hands off about it. And I presented my thing of like, look, I don't even know if this fits, but this is what I'm thinking about at the moment. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when the barista says, hey, what kind of coffee do you want? You're like, well, now that you've mentioned it, here's my relationship troubles. Help me out. <laughs> I ended up even crying. Are you sure this was you? None of this sounds like something that you would do at all. It sounds like maybe (laughs) you read this in a book and got it confused. I just got really emotional. So we were talking about this thing and uh, there was a moment where someone was talking from the role of having kids. Someone was talking from the role of not having kids. I was talking from the role of a person who can't decide 
(laughs) which of these two does that make sense so people will adopt different roles and then you'll kind of speak for that role and they'll they'll play those roles in a sense yeah they'll play those roles like a i wish there was a better word to say that but anyway keep going is i don't i actually don't know what the better word is a better word for someone who's playing a role they'll act out those roles maybe a role play they'll role play those roles (laughs) But it's not really, it's kind of a role play, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's different to that. There's no dice involved. It's definitely different. So how that gets back to the feelings thing is right at the start, we were having this conversation about topics and all that kind of stuff. And I started feeling really, really sick, like in my guts, like really nervous and uncomfortable and stuff. And... They got to this point where we were like, hey, does anyone want to say anything before we start? And I was like, I just want to say, I actually feel really, I feel sick. Not in a physical, like in a, this makes me really, really nervous way. And that actually opened up quite an interesting conversation around how it is uncomfortable to talk about these issues, particularly if we're speaking from a role that we don't feel necessarily we identify with, but other people might not be able to tell and you know it's freaking messy and complicated and a lot of people have a lot of very strong feelings about it but I find it really helpful to be able to name my experience but what I found really interesting and this is like I had like a psychological breakthrough on the weekend (laughs) are you ready for it I'm excited I realized I have like a PhD in shame like I'm all over that shit I mean Yes. But I don't even have like a cert two in happiness. I know so much about what it feels like to feel shame and to feel fear and to feel anxious. And and I've spent like 12 years trying to assess and analyze those experiences. But I've spent so little time trying to find out. Like I, my psychologist is like, what does it feel like in your body when you feel happy? And I was like, I have no idea. Are you happy at the moment? So I'm a bit anxious. Because we're recording? Yeah, because I'm always anxious when we're recording. But I've been trying to notice what do I feel like when I feel happy. I feel like I sound like such an idiot. But I was like, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know what happiness feels like. And part of that came out of the fact that I've spent so much time focusing on shame and fear and the unfun bits that I find it really difficult to validate my good experiences and to want to move towards them because I'm so focused on shame. Like at the moment, this whole, we've been having a big conversation about, you know, my work situation and what to do about all that kind of stuff. And most of my feelings about it have been focused on shame, disappointing people, screwing something up, guilt, Whereas there's actually a whole bunch of happy shit that I could be focusing on. Maybe this is why you and I always struggle with these conversations so much. Huh. Because when I'm assessing stuff, I will assess happiness and freedom first and foremost. Oh. And then that will be the thing that tips the scale. Yeah. So you and I have been talking about you reducing your hours in your, in your workplace. And the Patreon has provided you with an income so you could do that. It's provided you with a lot of stuff that you can directly work on to further increase that income. 
and it's provided you with a chance of like not being constantly working and constantly stressed. <laughs> and so for me, the happiness and freedom of working less seems like so obviously the right way to go. But for you, it's been this like three week liberation of like, do I do this or not? Because you've been over emphasizing all of the negative stuff if you do it that other people might feel or that might happen or the guilt that you might feel. When you say overemphasize, I don't think of it that way. I think that I have learned and I've also been taught to focus on those things. So maybe it's overemphasis, but it's like, that's where I go to. And that makes perfect sense because I've spent so long focusing on those things. Of course, that's what I'm going to focus on. So little of my deliberation about this kind of stuff has been about like, actually, you know what? This is really exciting. Yeah. In fact, the only time that came up when I was like, hey, this could be the start of your creative career. You were like, yeah. And so I'd feel so bad if it didn't work out. Exactly. That's exactly what I do. I'm like... Now that we've put this into words, it all makes a lot more sense. But this has been like, not just in the last couple of weeks when we've been discussing this, but the entire time I've known you. Yes. An endless source of frustration for me when I'm like, you know, do you want an ice cream that... Do you, want, do you want this delicious ice cream? And I'm like, but it could fuck up. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, okay. The thing is that my... Ex- oh, fuck, I'm probably going to cry again. <laughs> my experiences of shame and fear and sadness are terrifying to me. Like, genuinely terrifying. So when I... You know, when I'm trying to make decisions, that is such a big player at the table of like every decision. I'm like, how do I manage and avoid that thing? So it is scary and it does make you look at the world in a scary way. And it it does make me go, you know, like if I quit my job, actually, will that sort of situation actually make me feel worse? It's why I don't think that, I, f- I feel like it's more possible now, but what you've done in terms of moving overseas, I'm like, I, that doesn't, that previously, like that, I'm terrified of that. Why? Even though I also would want that in some way. You want to come move to Canada? Do you miss me that much? <laughs> I feel like I get enough. Uh, <laughs> you hit your quota. <laughs> Why am I terrified? Yeah. Because last time I went and lived overseas, I became really, really unwell. And even just recently, I went up to Queensland and I was working up there. And even that I found a bit difficult. And I was so fine. I was absolutely fine. There was like nothing to worry about. I just wasn't having a great time. And a big part of that is... You hung out with my brother. I did. No, no, no. Hanging out with your brother was great that I spent a lot of time feeling quite like just adrift. And that's exactly the thing that happened when I went and lived in America. And that's terrifying to me because to me, the thing that keeps me grounded, grounded, happy, safe is actually feeling connected to people. It's kind of funny because as much as I feel like I say kind of offhand, the creative shit that I do, like I couldn't live without it, but I I kind of do genuinely feel that way a lot of the time. Like 
the world wouldn't make sense to me in a way that's terrifying if I didn't have these often a bit strange ways of feeling connected to the world and to other people. You're saying two different things though. You're saying like, I couldn't move away because I need the people in my life. And you're saying the thing that keeps me grounded is working creatively. Yeah. So what's interesting is that now I actually feel like the idea of say moving overseas is more possible because I feel more connected because of these creative things and, and the audience that you've built and the friends that you've made through it all. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like I think that it keeps me alive. The thing that keeps me grounded and feeling happy is working. Like if I ever have to, like when, when sometimes when I'm traveling, I don't, I'm not able to work for like five or six days straight and I go mad. Like I need to sit down and work on stuff. I need to write. I need to develop stuff. I need to, I need to create. That's what it is. I need to create or else I don't, I don't, I don't feel like me and I just feel really lost. And I used to not know that consciously. We're talk, you were talking earlier about like um, being able to, to name those feelings and stuff like that is really helpful. There was a time, I don't know if I ever told you this, in grade 12, I did uh, all of the like high level math subjects. So I did in Queensland, it's called Math B and Math C. I am which is, not surprised. Uh, I'm, I'm very good at math. I don't know if you know that. Um, <laughs> I remember I, I, you trying not. to, I still don't know what a base is. Oh my God. Yeah. Base two is so interesting to me. And you refuse to list, like learn about <laughs> it. You tune out every time. <laughs> Look, I think that if you tried to explain it now, like, please don't actually try and explain it now. But <laughs> I mean, like more like hypothetically, if you tried to explain it now, I would probably listen. But when we were going out, I was. <laughs> Tell you what, we, uh, we do a monthly Patreon call as part of your Patreon. Anyone who's a $10 plus backer gets to sit in with a video call between you and me where we just talk and answer questions and chat. Uh, in the next one, I'm going to teach you what a base is and you're going to learn, okay? Okay, I like it. So when I was in grade 12, uh, 11 and 12, I was doing high level math for grade 11 and 12, like not university level math or anything like that. Um, I say I'm good at math. I'm not anymore. I always forget that. Like I didn't keep on learning it. So I am not good at math anymore, but I have a math brain. I was doing math B, math C, physics, English, drama, and film and TV were my six subjects. And film and TV and drama were really like low effort. Most, the vast majority of my time was put towards physics, math C, and a little bit towards math B. Uh, math, math C was the highest level math that you could do. And because I was spending all this time learning and processing stuff, but not creating, there were there was long periods of time in high school where I couldn't sleep until I got up and just wrote something. Huh. Like I would be in bed, totally exhausted, physically wiped, mentally exhausted, lying in bed until like 3am until I forced myself to get up and just draw some comics. And so I, I wrote these like pages and pages of these comics. They're all awful because I was 17 years old and, and didn't know what I was doing, but I had to get up and create in order to be able to physically sleep. Wow. I feel like there's a lot of people, myself included, who would be jealous of you for that. The thing about like, for, for me, creativity is a base need in the same way as food, sleep, sex, drink. I feel like creativity is a higher base need than food for you. Yeah, but I'm saying like I physically couldn't sleep without it. Yeah. I, it is like, you're right. I would survive. I would just not be doing well. <laughs> no, no, no. I said creativity is higher than food. Oh. Like I know your relationship with food. And I think creativity <laughs> is more important. Yes. And the thing is about like, if you want to work creatively or you want to do creative things, you need to do so much of it. Uh, I've been having a game <laughs> design week for the last two weeks. I've just been designing games. I've come up with four full games in the last four weeks, which is crazy. 
and I just spent today playtesting them, and most of them are not very good. One of them's got some stuff, and it needs to be refined and developed, but I've been doing this for a while now, and I'm, I am better than a lot of people, but I'm still nowhere near great at it. Like, I need to keep on working at this for months and months and years and years before I hit a level of being able to make really, really good stuff. And I think the vast majority of creative work is like that. Like, in order to get really good at it, you need to do it a bunch. I mean, you know the very famous Ira Glass, the gap, the gap. speech. Yeah, yeah. Or there's a, there's a quote, um, I think it was, it might have been Picasso. I can't remember. It was someone who said, uh, every artist has 100,000 bad drawings in them. Once you get those out, you can start to find the good ones. I went and saw Miranda July and she talks about the bad days bank of like, <laughs> yeah. like just if it's not just, it goes in the bank, goes in the bank. And there's this kind of this idea that there's a number of bad days that go in the bank before you get to the good day. You just never know how many is required. <laughs> and the thing is like, I think about this a lot because I, I am obsessed with creativity. It's not enough to want to be an artist. You have to have that constant drive in order to be able to do the sheer amount of work that you need. So when I applied for university, I applied for three courses. I applied for film and TV, I applied for TV and I applied for animation. And I got accepted by animation and TV. Yep. Except I used to write comics and draw them all the time. And after like, after one day of drawing a week, I did not have the urge to draw. And so I couldn't sit down and force myself to draw anymore. Like that was it. I was at my limit of drawing. And so I'm never going to be a great artist because I can't sit down and get the 100,000 bad drawings out. But what I think is interesting is that I think like uh, we've just been talking about it in terms of drawings, which is can be a little bit misleading. I think Amanda Palmer is a really great example of she talks about there was a moment which she realized I am just I'm never going to be a virtuosic. Is that a word? A I'm never going to be a virtuoso. I'm, I'm never going to be really amazing at the piano. And that's fine because my skill is not being amazing at the piano. My skill is actually creating weird experiences for me for a lot of the time. Scott Adams used to talk about the fact that you either need to be in the top 0.01% of one thing or the top 10% of two or three things. Huh. So he's like, I am not one of the best artists in the world. I'm not one of the best writers in the world. But I can write and put art together in funny ways. Yeah. Wait a minute. Is Scott Adams the Dilbert dude? Yeah. <laughs> Before he went off the rails, I used to love his blog. There was so much interesting stuff in there. Yeah. And so my point is, like, when you say I'm sure people would be jealous, I can totally understand that. Like, I have to create nonstop and because i'm doing that i'm gonna get better at it yeah uh, and so i am not nearly as good at anything as i would like to be but i am going to like whether i want to or not i am going to keep on doing this shit forever one of our mutual friends said about you once that i think he said something along the lines of you're a get shit done machine I was like, yeah, yeah, he really is. It's funny because when we were going out, I always thought you were the person who always got stuff done and I never got anything done. And now I feel like I get a bit more done. <laughs> As in you've, you've changed the amount or your expectations have changed? What's interesting is I think that I'm easier on myself and that allows me to get more things done. You are, I don't know how good at singing you are because I'm tone deaf. Yeah, you are tone deaf. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for telling My me that. My heart will always go on. Ooh. 
I would always do that to you where I would like sing the tune of one song but with the words of another song and you would always get really confused. So that was My Heart Will Go On but with, what's the Celine Dion song? Anyway. Yeah, I, I didn't know that because I can't tell tune. Apparently you're a very good singer. <laughs> and you're a nice little lyricist and you come up with little tunes and you're very cute. And so like in your shoes, oh my God, I would have released like 50 albums by the time I was your age. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Because I would just like make, 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 make. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know that top of your mind thing that we've talked about before? I remember when I first started knowing people who were really, really, really good at Twitter. Okay. Like shit hot at Twitter. <laughs> yep. Like so fucking funny and constantly, like a constant stream of hilarious shit. And I was like, what the fuck? How? How? How, how do you do this and do the rest of your life? And then I kind of realized that, and and this is again why I took a break from social media, is that the more I've gotten into social media, the more how my brain thinks change, has, has changed. Really? You know, have you heard of that? I think it's a hashtag on Instagram, only going there to gram, like as in <laughs> only going somewhere so you can take a photo, which, you know, people talk about. In, and pick on people for doing that or whatever. That is also the reality of a lot of things. But if I imagine that if you were really shit hot at Twitter, your internal dialogue would be, I imagine a lot of it would be Twitter related. It would be 140 characters. Yeah, like so much of, like, maybe not so much, but like a bunch of how you're thinking is about how do I gear this towards that. And for me, I was like, look, I could spend my time doing that or I could spend my time <laughs> doing something else in, and in terms of like my mental energy as in all the thought bits in between all of the rest of my life that I do the bits where you're sitting on the toilet and you're just thinking about stuff or you're driving your car I was like I could spend all of that time thinking about how to make the best joke on Twitter or I could do it I don't know thinking about how race and class intersects in the case of O.J. Simpson or, um, you know. Yeah, so I, I right now, my the top of my mind is board games. Like, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm in the shower or driving around my car. But uh, I'm about to burn out on board games for a little bit, so I'm about to shift that, hopefully, to sitcoms because I've got a, a pilot that I want to redraft. I was going to say, this goes back to the thing of, at the moment, I don't want to think about anything. Like, I'm so crispy. That you, you pull out your phone and, and that's where you put your, your brain instead? I don't want to think about anything. I want that golden moment before sleep. <laughs> yeah. But I get it in a really way worse version by looking at my phone. It lets you externalize. And that's why I'm obsessively looking at OJ Simpson documentaries and Googling civil rights movements and stuff in America and also in Egypt. I finally got my a bit of my head around the Arab Spring the other yeah. day. <laughs> See, like, this is like, this is my relief uh, from thinking is to just fill my brain with more other stuff. So you, you were talking earlier about being obsessed with shame and guilt and negative emotions generally. Yeah. And you understand that like the more you fixate on negative things, the, the more Absolutely. negative you Absolutely. So I don't understand why you, like, you are consciously aware of this. So instead of obsessively watching OJ Simpson documentary, why don't you watch really well done sitcoms? Look... It's a really, really great point. I actually, okay. 
while I'm doing it, I'm conscious of this argument. Last night I stayed up really late and I was watching this OJ Simpson documentary. It's called OJ Made in America. It's really, really good. And it in particularly because it looks at it sociopolitically, which is really interesting. But then I was too terrified to go to the bathroom. <laughs> in, in case there was a black man in your house? No, no, no. Like, just like, no, not in that way. Just in a, I was just really terrified. And Of what? I used to be really afraid of the dark. I'm still kind of afraid of the dark. Because that's where black people hide? No, because I just... This whole thing is a bit, they've been just talking about domestic violence and people breaking into your house and beating her up and it's like bad stuff. So I was just like, ah, maybe someone's in my house. You know, it was unreasonable. I turned on all the lights and I went to the bathroom. Everything was okay. But I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Like my form of escapism is like. So wh- why? Why do you, is it self-destructive? Are you being uh, self-destructive? I don't think Is it's, it self-destructism? Uh, I don't know. Jury's out on self-destructive, but it is effective in that because I have such a big emotional reaction to it, it is a form of escape, like from my normal world and my normal worries. When I want to escape, I will put something charming and delightful and happy on. <laughs> when I want to escape, I will like Wikipedia colored Saeed and look up photos about police br- brutality and... But do you understand that... I don't always do that. It's just what I've been doing lately. But like, I absolutely understand your argument that maybe I should choose some different media to consume. This is like smoking. I've never smoked. I've never been a smoker. never smoked a cigarette. Uh, I had one cigar once for a video. And that's it. That's the extent of my smoking history and the history of my life. I realized yesterday that every single person I've dated has been a smoker. Huh. And I am really not attracted to smoking. I think it's a repulsive habit. I think or it's a really dumb thing. Really attracted to smoking. No, I'm not. Uh, I think it's a really dumb thing that is even worse to me because it's so consciously dumb. In order to smoke, there are like six steps between not smoking and finishing a cigarette. Uh, sure. Including like going to the store and paying them money for cigarettes. Look, I I used to be a smoker and I totally, I'm, you know, I get it. And so like... This for me is is on that exact same level of like... Why would you do that? Oh, there's really, really self-destructive behavior that you know is bad for you, that you consciously and deliberately repeatedly do. Well, so particularly... Okay, so I think the bit where it's quite different between smoking and watching documentaries about O.J. Simpson is that <laughs> there's this... There's the, the, one thing that, the one difference. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I find draws me to that stuff is it's stuff that I feel like I should know. Yeah, but you what you, you told me before we started recording, you're watching this documentary for the second time. Because I started halfway through and then I went back to the start and now the second half makes way more sense. <laughs> so, so like No, no, I, no, know, I understand. If, if I was someone who who was who suffered from depression and negative thoughts, seeking out negative thoughts would not be my coping strategy. Yeah, I can understand that. Especially when there are so many good happy shows out there. You obviously don't understand what it's like to be a smoker, so... Watch, watch the West Wing. I tried watching the West Wing, and then it made me feel bad. Actually, it made me feel worse than watching O.J. Simpson. Because when I watch the West Wing, I'm like, here's all these successful people being successful, and I'm just <laughs> shit. And then it was really interesting to see, oh, what's the guy, uh, the really attractive young guy? Rob Lowe. 
I saw Rob Lowe in another movie where he plays a really kind of his character is a bit not intelligent. I don't know. Yeah, his character is you know stupid slapstick. Yes, um, and then I realized. Wait, that wait, wait! Is "stupid" a word that you can't say anymore? I don't like. I don't. Anyway, let's move. You don't on. like adjectives. The more we do this podcast, the more you're like, oh, look, I don't want to. I don't want to say the sky is blue. Let's just say the sky chose to be a color, and whatever the color the sky chose is totally up to it, and that's fine. Anyway, Rob Lowe was playing this character. This character was a stupid character, and. <laughs> That's when I realized that Rob Lowe is an actor. He's not the person in the West Wing. That was the moment when you realized that? <laughs> like, clearly, You're like, I it's that weird before. that this documentary character then went on to, to star in a I film. I was like, oh, I don't have to feel bad that I'm not like Rob Lowe because, because Rob no Lowe is. isn't that person. But then I was like, but those people probably exist. I just like to not see them on TV. Yeah, I, 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 I have no words for you. <laughs> I'm just saying what makes you feel bad is very subjective and complicated. So OJ Simpson documentary make you feel good? What's interesting is that watching the documentary, I feel like I'm playing the part of the thing that the documentary is also kind of critical of, which is, you know, how these kinds of stories become... <sighs> You know, how they become ent- entertainment. It sounds like a self-loathing activity to me. No, I, I feel like it's like a guilty pleasure, but in the same way that chocolate is a guilty pleasure. Right, but chocolate doesn't leave you feeling awful. Sometimes chocolate does make you feel awful. I guess if you have too much chocolate, yes. After the first six bars. then I uh... feel like, I see, for me, what I like is, okay, so there's a lot of really bad shit in this thing, but... It makes me feel like I understand, like I have a new understanding of the world and that I actually find energizing. And, and you know, like recently I watched Making a Murderer and I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'm not going to finish that because that is a bad time. So bad. Yeah, no. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Jane the Virgin season two is out. Yeah. Kind of got over that show. Oh. Sorry, it was the first, the first series was very good, spot on. But then I was like, oh, my God, it's the same music. And, oh, of course, something happened. <laughs> what were you going to say before I cut you off? I understand the t- dangers of using cr- true crime documentaries. And I will take a harm minimization approach. Which is? Being mindful of how it's affecting my life. And then, you know. Cutting yourself off when you need to. Taking notes on that, you know. Okay. At the moment, I realize that I'm in a... Uh, like I'm quite stressed and so it's kind of like a distress tolerance tool. The same way that I realized that playing with stuff and fidgeting, you know how so many times you tell me to stop playing with pens and shit? I tell you to stop making noise into the microphone, yes. <laughs> I feel like that's a reasonable no, request. No, but you tell me specifically to put everything out of my hands. Yeah, because otherwise you will make noise into the microphone. This is true, but also the reason I do it is because it's like a distress tolerance Thing. What are you saying? Distress tolerance? Distress tolerance. It's a coping strategy for me to deal with my anxiety is to fidget all the time. I've noticed it particularly because I've been delivering training and when I deliver training, I just go hardcore on my pen. I play with it so much. I pull it apart. I put it back together. I just like, I just, I was in my psychologist's <laughs> office the other day and I broke one of her pens. <laughs> 
But it was interesting because I was fine. I was sitting there and then as soon as an uncomfortable thing came up, I immediately grabbed a pen and started playing with it. Like you, and I hadn't huh. properly kind of Maybe I'm stressed. clicked that, but because I feel anxious quite a lot, I fidget with stuff. That's like, I've been fidgeting with my buttons this whole time because you won't let me have any damn pens. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just properly realized that. So in going, if we go back a bit to like, what does happiness look like? Part of it is not fidgeting. Like I know that I feel content if I'm not fidgeting with stuff. Maybe I've been anxious lately because for the last like five or six podcasts uh, that I do with you and the one that I do with my brother, I've listened to the audio and been like, I am playing with something, which is really uncharacteristic for me. Yeah. Huh. Maybe. Like I'm, I'm playing with something right now. Uh, How in fact, dare I've, you? I've, I've dropped three things that I've been playing with because as soon as I stop playing with something, I pick it up and start playing with something. Oh my God. I've been doing this when I've been delivering training and I, I'm fidgeting with like pens so hard that I keep dropping it like while I'm training. And then I pick up my pen and I keep playing it. I was like, everyone totally is like, she's really, (laughs) really into her pens. (laughs) When I first moved to Toronto, I was just working all the time and I wasn't fidgeting then. And now I'm, I've got a bit more of a social life and I'm fidgeting more. Maybe I'm less happy because I have friends. Well, I'm not sure about that, but you did say before that creating stuff is really important for you. That's true. Maybe I'm creating less. Or maybe you're just out of your honeymoon phase of Toronto maybe I never loved the city I just loved working I got so much work done in those first few months and I was going to the gym every day I was going to the gym every day and working so much yeah I haven't told you this lately but I've just been having a lot of like food anxiety not a lot a bit of food anxiety and like body anxiety like eating disorder level or no 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 I just noticed that I'm like and feeling anxious about it. And this is this other escapism thing. I'm like, I want to get, I want to do a meal plan. I feel so embarrassed talking about this. This is like one of my shameful secrets, <laughs> but it makes me want to go on like a meal plan. Cause I've had friends who've done it before where they use like light and easy or whatever, you know, which isn't about losing weight. It, well, it is about losing weight, but for me, it's not so much about that. Well, maybe it is. Anyway, it's more about, having relief from food anxiety because you're thinking about food yeah yeah so if i could yeah i've been thinking about going on soylent uh for that same reason yeah so if i i'm like uh how much do i value not experiencing this anxiety would i do a few weeks where i pay for this program where they give you all of your food so you don't have to think about it um and i was like lately i've been like i think i want to do that as a way of yeah, getting away from my stress, which I think is a creative solution. One of my absolute like dreams, I think I learned about this from either Tim Ferriss's book or one of those other kind of similar things, uh, this idea of a personal chef, which is not a private chef. Like it's not someone who comes and lives in your house and cooks for you. A personal chef, they come by like two to three times a week and they cook you the next two or three days worth of meals. So they come to your house, they use your pots and pans. Uh, you have to make sure you have all the pots and pans for them. They bring their own ingredients. They cook up two or three days worth of food for you. They put it in Tupperware. And then you just don't have to think about food, but you have freshly cooked meals in the fridge. That sounds like heaven to me. I hate thinking about food. I really, really hate the sheer amount of time and energy we as humans have to spend thinking about food. But at the same time, I can't go on Soylent all the time because I... Different people have different levels of like 
able to eat the same thing and it's mostly prominent in babies because babies don't get a choice not babies but like little kids some little kids will eat leftovers every day for a week some little kids will be like no we had this yesterday and it's because like to a certain extent it's an inherent thing that people have that they can or can't stand having the same thing over and over my friend kate can't even eat leftovers if she's had it in the last week she she won't eat it again Oh, wow. And so I used to want to go on Soylent because I was like, I could just have, you know, never have to think about food again. Um, we were going out when you started trying Soylent. It was know, very the, interesting. The podcast audience went there. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just mean as in I was there for when you, I, I was so opposed to it at the time. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were very opposed to anything that wasn't normal. Not anything that wasn't That normal, is but... not true. I was opposed to anything that might negatively affect me. And you going on Soylent was like, well, now I have to cook all of my own food all of the time, just for me. <laughs> what the hell? This it's is like, like having a partner that I live with, but without any of the benefits, like you cooking <laughs> me food, which is most, if not all of the benefits. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, for a while I was trying to eat Soylent, but like after having it five times in a row, I just can't do it anymore. I get really bored of it. Yeah, I can't do that either. There's also this thing, uh, Jason Zook talks about it. He's talked about it a few times. Jason Zook is a person that I follow who is a creative entrepreneur person. He uses this thing. In Australia, it's called HelloFresh, where they give you all of the ingredients. So you make the food, but you don't have to go to the supermarket. You don't have to think about what to eat. They just give you literally everything that you would need to make that meal. See, for me, the advantage of a personal chef is I can be like, hey, here's the meals I want for the next four days or the next three days. They'll cook those ones. And then, oh my God, like that genuinely fills me with joy, the idea of that happening. That is such a beautiful idea to me. I feel like such a dickhead having this conversation. Why? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just feel really, uh, I feel really privileged talking about personal chefs. I can't imagine a situation where I would actually have a personal chef. I think, like, I already feel embarrassed talking about the idea of going on a meal plan for, like, three weeks. You know, that makes me feel ashamed. And I think part of it is because it makes me feel like I can't control. Like, I used to have a lot of sort of food issues. And, like, I feel like that stuff is still not completely resolved. Um, Of which I'm not confident that it ever will be, but I have some sort of, I feel slightly embarrassed about that or something. Yeah. No, it's, it's not, I don't, I'm not like I'm better than everyone else. So I don't have to cook. I just hate cooking. I hate it. Yeah. And I hate the amount of time I have to spend like thinking about it. Cause if I forget to eat for a day, which today I forgot to eat, it got to about 7 PM and I was like, fuck uh, me and Lucy just went away for the weekend. So we got back. There's no food here. I forgot to eat today. You were coming online the next half hour. So I needed to eat because I can't record a podcast without anything or I'll just faint halfway through. And I hate that. Like I hate, I resent the fact that I have to think about that kind of shit. Uh, And so I end up just ordering takeout, which is expensive and not healthy. So it's the worst of all situations, but like that's often the case. So that's a big reason I'm about to go back on keto. That's a big reason I do keto because I will spend two days a week thinking about food and cooking up a bunch. And then from then on, it's just pull it out of the fridge and reheat it. And the way that keto works is you don't get lightheaded and hungry. Oh. You will eventually get like you'll eventually notice that you haven't eat, but it doesn't affect your blood sugar. It doesn't like you don't you don't get swimmy in the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just are like, oh, I need to eat at some point. It, food becomes fuel for your body, which is all I want it to be. <laughs> like d- delicious, delicious foods, great. That is not a priority for me. I just want to get food in my body so I can keep doing things. 
I can imagine so many people that are like, what's wrong with you? I feel slightly like that just because I love food a lot and I also find it annoying. Anyway, that's all from us this week. Thank you, Joel and Josh, from Always Listening for doing a lovely review. You can find that at alwayslisteningpod.com. Just search for Being Honest With My Ex. Uh, They did a nice review. They said lovely things about me. We didn't really talk about the review that much, but it it was nice. They were nice. Yeah, it was a good review. And we have an outro this week from Monique. Thanks for listening to Being Honest With My Ex. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes, leave a review, and tell all your friends. Peter is my favorite human. Have a lovely night. (laughs) Aww. Like two days later, Monique sent me this email being like, "Ah, I shouldn't have said you're my favorite human. I like you, but you're not my favorite human. (laughs) Monique's a friend of mine from Canberra. I was staying at her house when we recorded the first two episodes. And she then sent a follow-up email being like, I'm not going to record a new one, but you can mention that I emailed you in, in a panic about that. Uh, if you want to make fun of me on the podcast. So I will happily take any opportunity to make fun of people on the podcast. I think that that's a really good caveat to put on there, you know? Like, what? We want to make sure that our outros are honest. Yes, that's true. I appreciate being told the truth. Uh, this is a very honest podcast. And so far, every other outro has been honest. So Yeah. Because um, they haven't followed it up. So they must have been yeah, they must have been. Yeah, they must have been telling the truth. Particularly my dad's one, which is from like <laughs> episode four. He's like... This is stupid. I'm not going to say this. <laughs> Peter's not my favorite son. That was very honest. If you'd like to send us an outro, just record the script. It's in the show notes of every podcast and email it to contact at beinghonestwithmax.com or just tie it to a brick and throw it into SJ's window. <laughs> I like the idea of this tiny USB stick. Attached <laughs> Tied to a, to a brick. Giant brick. Please don't do that. We are actually out of outros, so if you do want to send us one, that would be great because we have none left in the queue. Yeah, that'd be cool. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. See you next week. Bye.